This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Mammoth Campaigns. The Lost Roman Legion. Television Structures. And the Thule Gesellschaft. Once more, we enter the friendly confines of the gaming hut, the paneled basement, the uh, dice arranged around a series of handouts, maps, charts, matchbooks, cards, and at the center of it all, a book, a book that is a mightier challenge than anything it contains. We talk about Mammoth Call of Cthulhu campaigns. Robin? Have you played a Mammoth Call of Cthulhu campaign, or merely admired them from afar? I have. I'm an afar admirer. Back in the day of my prime Call of Cthulhu playing, when I would be most likely to be able to run such a thing, I did not feel I had the attention span of my uh, players to uh, run an epic uh, game. And in my uh, later incarnation as a game designer, the closest I've come to designing an epic campaign is a sort of player-driven, improvised campaign that is the Armitage Files. Uh, so although I played bits and pieces of that, I did not run a full-on 10-document version of, of the Armitage Files. So I am merely able to uh, appreciate the grandiose wonder uh, that Simon Rogers surely has in mind when he asked us to tackle this topic, because he's put together the classic style giant campaign for Trail of uh, Cthulhu called the Eternal Lies Campaign, which has a fun twist on that uh, concept that we don't want to give away here. But uh, certainly there are groups that have done the massive campaigns because we have player uh, actual play versions of those. And so we, we know that people do them. I think that they tend to be played by people for whom Call of Cthulhu is their main deal. That's their source of gaming and they have the stable group that they can commit to playing the epic you know year-long campaign and to have run them is a giant badge of honor and i think a lot of other people take them and kit bash them that they can just sort of you know they're all tend to be designed in a discrete set of adventures that link up into a giant campaign so of course if you have your group for less time than the giant massive campaign requires, then you can take those little bits and you can take whatever bit seems to work and just run it as a standalone. Have you ever had the chance to run a, a ginormous campaign? I, I, I actually have. I ran Call of Cthulhu ex pretty much exclusively for, say, seven years in the 80s. Um, and so I ran Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth, the first uh, globetrotting Call of Cthulhu campaign. I ran much of Massive Nanothotep, although, like you say, I kit-bashed it. I would pull individual pieces of it out and use it in my ongoing campaign because the storyline didn't match the, the main backstory that I already had. But I also ran The Brotherhood of the Beast. I ran uh, Spawn of Azathoth, uh, the other uh, big box, and I've, uh, again, run individual encounters out of the Orient Express uh, the campaign that uh, Chaosium also did. So I've run pieces of two of the classics and all of the other two uh, also rans or runners-up. So I have certainly got a feel for what a mammoth Call of Cthulhu campaign is like as a 
um, uh, as, as, an, as an experience. And I should mention parenthetically that we mean no disrespect to anyone who's run all of the Transylvania Chronicles from Vampire or the entire Giants series uh, from good old uh, AD&D, but there's really only one Masks of Nilothotep, there's really only one Call of Cthulhu, and that's what we're talking about right now. I, th I think that you're right that there's a, a sort of a badge of honor being a, a Call of Cthulhu player and having gone all the way through masks. And I see this on message board after message board, form after form, people saying, yeah, we ran through it. It took us 29 player characters to get all the way through. <laughs> or, yeah, I ran it. It was two years of my life. Every weekend we'd get together, we'd do it. It was the most phenomenal time we've ever had. There just so many uh, horrible killings. We had to introduce... Uh, people's like third cousins by the end of the thing to, to keep the narrative uh, thread straight. And it's sort of, it, it's like people coming down off of Everest and talking about how, uh, what, what a killer the North Face was or something. It, it's that level of, of sort of extreme sports that still involves sitting around <laughs> eating Doritos instead of, you know, actually getting outdoors in the fresh air. And there are so many different ways that it can be a badge of honor because uh, as we've gone along and they've been reissued in increasingly lavish editions. And now we're starting to see them reissued in Kickstarter lavish editions. So for example, the, there's going to be a new version of murder on the Orient express. Well, there's an entire fiction anthology to go with that. I actually wrote a story for that. So I get to As did I. Uh, spiritually feel that we have a, a little bit of a, a hand in that. So that's great. Um, and uh, so just the, the, I think that dovetails with the collector aspect that has always kind of come out of uh, Chaosium fandom and continues even to uh, people who started out with that and have moved on to other things. So, uh, And you've even got the phenomenon of the uh, companion that the uh, guys at Yogsasoth.com have done, which is just as massive a product, a sort of a... a it's even massiver, uh, actually. It's like... It's 570 pages. So, you know, that's really the, uh, you know, a, a sense of one-upsmanship there. Not only did we run it, but we have this massive concordance for <laughs> it uh, that, uh, you know, so in a way that they are sort of the uh, sacred foundational texts of, of Call of Cthulhu fandom. And the interesting thing about them is that they are very much a gaming development that is its own tradition within Lovecraftiana, because, of course, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, unless I'm uh, missing any of his uh, uh, major works, did not go on to create a massive international campaign that jumped from setting to setting all across the world. That's something that has become a trope of Lovecraftian gaming rather than of Lovecraftian literature. Uh, yeah, the closest you get in Lovecraft to the globetrotting campaign is the actual story, Call of Cthulhu, which takes place uh, in Louisiana, it takes place in Providence, it takes place in the South Pacific, it takes place in Scandinavia, but it's not the same character in all of those places. It's someone following clues to a bunch of different characters in all of those places. Lovecraft uses the globetrotting not as a single human's adventure, but actually, ironically, to point out that uh, there cannot have been a... Uh, the, 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 the Cthulhu mythos is too big for any one human perspective to comprehend. And so the, the notion that that has then been taken and turned into uh, magical... Uh, the, the, the foundational text of Call of Cthulhu is, is hilarious and ironic in a lot of ways, and it, and it perhaps should not be examined too closely by uh, Lovecraftian Puritans. Uh, well, indeed, the, the 
what that story does is that's almost sort of the metatextual version of the guys sitting down after someone else has had the epic campaign and sorting out through all the documents yeah. to make their concordance for it. Yeah, but well, I mean, he's literally playing the nephew of a player character who got eaten. Yes. <laughs> so the um, so so the, the 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 masks experience is is sort of Eka Lovecraftian. Uh, although again, um, you can you can uh, take something like Mountains of Madness, which is itself a fairly epical um, story, and as Chaosium has done, create a mega campaign that is the sequel to it, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, but at the heart is just one other Antarctic expedition. And uh, Pagan uh, Publishing did a, an Ithaqua uh, mega campaign uh, about the North Pole to sort of match if you're into polar uh, Cthulhu playing. Um, in Pagan's Walker in the Wastes, uh, you can uh, chase Ithaqua in similarly globe-trotting, although admittedly the globe is much smaller up there at the Arctic Circle, and uh, have a matching polar expedition if you want to do two uh, mega campaigns back-to-back and pole-to-pole. So, uh, in, in, a, in a way, the, uh, the lack of geographical scope is not necessarily the defining factor in whether or not something is a mega campaign in that way, although, of course, Shadows of Vyog Sothoth, the sort of opening um, gun in that, was intentionally written as a globe-trotting Indiana Jones-style pulp adventure. So can you foresee an alternate history where the first mega campaign had a different concept of than the globetrotting adventure and and what would uh what would possible alternate versions of of that have been that then spawned a uh you know generation of other products that are basically leveraging people's either nostalgia for having played that first mega campaign or uh their uh wish that they had been able to play that uh, mega campaign? I, I think that if you're not going to use Call of Cthulhu, it, let, it, let's say that Sandy Peterson is, is back in, and he's deciding which Lovecraft story to adapt, and rather than being inspired by Indiana Jones, he's inspired by, um, you know, something else, uh, uh, some, other, some other source, and he chooses to write a, a campaign based on Charles Dexter Ward, where you have that same sort of epical span, but it's a span of time. So you play a series of uh, of, of uh, characters, series of investigators, who are each other's ancestors, going farther and farther back into time until you get to the central moment in which your characters confront uh, uh, Joseph Kerwin and destroy him. And you have the depth in time in a physical location. So there's a, a, a big Arkham setting around it, but instead of being Nairobi and... Um, Shanghai and London and Cairo and New York, it's Arkham in 1927 and Arkham during the Civil War and Arkham during the Revolution and then Arkham in ancient times, uh, pre, you know, pre-American uh, uh, colonization during the time when the Miskimoc Indians are, are still living there. And, and I think that you can, you can sort of look at a possibility in which Sandy has, has decided that uh, Lovecraft's centrality of place means that a, a, a mega campaign has to explore deeper into one spot. He sort of anticipates Keith Herber, and so the next one is a time and space spanning game that never leaves Vermont based on Whisper in Darkness. And so then you would sort of have the fusion of horror gaming with the saga gaming that Pendragon does so well. Exactly, and, yeah. And Pendragon's sort of uh, equivalents of Masks of Neuralathotep are the various multi-generational campaigns and uh, that sort of solves the problem somewhat of coming up with the, uh, you know, the third cousin who can step in because by the time you've moved on to the next uh, 
installment in the adventure rather than, you know, getting increasingly further and further cycles of acquaintances together that you are basically just skipping a generation. Now you have to make sure that the characters are all described as having a young offspring before they mm -hmm. go off to, uh, <laughs> to get eaten, to get eaten. Uh, but that you could uh, probably uh, have a lot of fun with that as a, a giant uh, spanning adventure as well. And you also see the influence of that, those games uh, or those campaigns in the popularity of other smaller scenarios. So for example, in the first anthology of trail of Cthulhu scenarios, uh, I've gotten good responses to all of them, but the one that people really, really love is Shanghai Bullets, mm -hmm. uh, which takes uh, real-life politics of the period, as Trail itself does, and mixes that with a uh, mythos threat in an exotic location. And uh, clearly people there are enjoying the mix of uh, pulp tropes that uh, Lovecraft himself never much uh, trucked with, with his horror themes. And I think also you're getting um, a, a great deal of appreciation for your role in designing feng shui. So fans of Robin Laws are already uh, sensitized in a good way to uh, the mysterious orient and martial arts and pulp adventure, and to see it come back at them sort of from an unexpected angle through the mythos. I think that's another reason that you get a lot of, and also it's of course a great adventure, but I think that may be another one of the sort of uh, echoes that you're getting. I know that when I did uh, the Zelazhny Quartet as the first uh, scenario pack for Knights Black Agents, I deliberately wanted to model it on Masks of Nirlathotep in that the four adventures could be played in any order. I, I love that that architecture, and I understand that it's really, really hard to do, uh, and it's even harder if you don't make Gareth Hanrahan do all of it. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it pays off so magically in terms of campaign design, the ability to pull those adventures out and, and use them in any order as opposed to um, uh, bouncing uh, sort of from, from carrot to carrot as you, as you uh, go hunt the rod of seven parts. It, it, it makes it feel more organic, and uh, you can really put your stamp on it in, in your own way. I, I really like that architecture that Larry Dottilio came up with, uh, or Sandy or whoever it was, um, came up with the idea. I, I think that that, that that can really pay uh, dividends as a designer and as a game master. It's a brilliant stroke, too, because it forecloses you from making the whole epic thing linear that you can have you can fall into the linear trap in each individual chapter but because you've taken away from yourself the ability to have cause and effect between the the different installments that that uh, forces you to start thinking of branching and choice points and keeps you away from that uh, dreaded over-linearity that is so easy to fall into when writing a text-heavy adventure. Right. Although, of course, as um, uh, the author of every single It Is Not Either Railroading You Jackass uh, section in Gumshoe, you know as well as I do that linear design is not necessarily bad design. And so, for example, a, a more linear campaign like uh, Beyond the Mountains of Madness or like uh, Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth even is not necessarily a flaw and certainly eternal lies while its adventures are not uh, as modular as Massive Nilothotep, you gain a great deal of narrative scope from being able to lay out a mystery that does indeed have a geographical solution point. Yes, because the uh, as uh, others have pointed out, the thing about a mystery scenario is that any mystery scenario may be linear on the page because it introduces a question at the beginning and takes you through a series of steps to answer that question at the end, mm -hmm. but it's the 
way that that is tackled is the story, not the blueprint on the the page. But even so, you know, some some linearities are are stronger than others, and I think we are uh, at this point verging into uh, not only another topic but another <laughs> yes. topic we've already covered. Thus, refuting linearity in a whole new way. Yes, yeah, so it's time to uh, uh, check with our uh, uh, pursers and make sure that our uh, Steamer trunks are aboard the steamship and uh, head off to an exotic isle to uh, uh, confront what will surely be just a minor spot of bother. So, once again, we hit the point in our podcast where someone asks Ken and Robin, and this segment is ingeniously entitled Ask Ken and Robin, and Leo Paul Hrafsnan asks, what is the Lost Roman Legion? So, uh, what is uh, the, the Lost Roman Legion that one hears so much about in myth, story, and song? The, the Lost Roman Legion is a, sort of an artifact of British people writing history, because obviously the Romans lost plenty of legions in their day. Uh, they lost um, uh, a number of legions in Germany in the Battle of uh, Teutoburg Forest. They lost uh, uh, two legions or three at Carre in Parthia to the Parthians, and no doubt they mislaid one or two others. But the famously lost legion is the Ninth Legion, or Legion Hispania, uh, which v- uh, vanished mysteriously in the wilds of Britain, which is, of course, what has got British uh, historians so excited about it. And it um, uh, disappeared in British legend in Britain uh, around 117 uh, AD, which was probably when it was uh, uh, fighting Scots, or, or they weren't Scots then, Picts, uh, north of Hadrian's Wall, and that uh, they were swallowed up. And that there's no real evidence, uh, at least there wasn't when the Victorians invented this story, as to what happened. Uh, now, sadly, uh, later uh, research has demonstrated that the Ninth actually left Britain and was redeployed to Judea to fight uh, Parthians and or the Bar Kochba revolt and might have been exterminated uh, there. The, however, the last record of the Ninth definitely is in York in 108 AD, so we don't know for sure what uh, happened, whether the Legion was like badly savaged by, um, uh, the, uh, um, uh, by, by a British rebellion or a Pictish invasion, and what, uh, and maybe a part of that legion was then reconstituted as cadre in the Near East and uh, uh, and annihilated by uh, rebellious Jews. There's a line uh, in a Roman historian who's uh, sort of consoling the uh, Marcus Aurelius but, uh, when he lost a great huge whack of men in, in battle against the Marcomanni. Uh, he he would say, "Well, it's not as bad as what happened to you know your ancestor Hadrian," and, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I, I think you know, <laughs> I, I think you're uh, maybe. Trafficking a little too heavily on Marcus Aurelius's reputation for stoicism when you say that kind of thing to him. Uh, so it may in fact be that this is not so much uh, a legion that was lost, but that simply its paperwork was misplaced. <laughs> yes, that its paperwork was misplaced. But certainly there is uh, plenty of evidence that, I mean, Hadrian didn't just build the wall for his health. There was probably some kind of ruckus up on the northern border in Britain that made him do it. And that ruckus might have, you know, chewed up a, a big part of a legion. And certainly the, um, uh, vast Roman response to Bar Kochba's re- revolt. They literally tore Jerusalem down stone on stone. They give it the whole Carthage treatment. The, 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 they relocated the Jews. They made it illegal for Jews to live in Jerusalem, even to live, I think, in Judea after the, the, after the rebellion. 
and um, they 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 just devastated the the, the province. That implies that the Jews uh, did a lot of damage, and the thing that historically would get the Roman emperors just beside themselves with anger would be the uh, loss of a legion. So it's entirely possible that the Ninth did indeed get you know eaten alive by either uh, blue-painted uh, woad warriors or by um, a bunch of uh, angry Israelis uh, in the past. So is the romance of the idea of the lost legion then the romance of having annihilated the legion? Are you identifying with the uh, underdogs who took them out? Or are you feeling the, you know, the, the romance of the lost cause of the last man going down, the sort of uh, a Roman custer, as it were? Well, one of, one of the great things about the British, I think, just in their character, is that they are simultaneously identifying with the Romans and rooting for the Celts. That there is some part of their mind. I mean, this was the famous argument between Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. And Lovecraft, you know, called himself a Roman, and he was a Roman and a civilized Briton. And uh, Robert E. Howard was a, was a Celt and a barbarian. But Howard would always point out that Lovecraft couldn't be both a Briton and a Roman because the uh, Britons were the guys who killed all the Romans. And so you, you couldn't be both. And Lovecraft would respond that he was part of the tradition of civilization that was passed down by the Romans to the waiting hands of the Britons. And when he says Britons, he doesn't mean filthy barbarian Britons. He means landowning Britons who can afford to um, uh, hang around and write short stories instead of go to work. Proper 18th century Britons. Exactly. And, and so the, the, the British ability to sort of, you know, you know, deliberately pattern themselves in a lot of ways after the Roman Empire and to identify with them and saying, no, no, the, Ro the Romans uh, stayed in Britain. Arthur was the last Roman. This is, this is a Roman uh, civilization. Britannia never fell to uh, the barbarians. The legion just upped stakes and left. Um, uh, you know, we were the last out. They, they have that mentality simultaneously with, val with valorizing the, the man-eating warriors that devoured the, the Ninth Legion alive and buried them under uh, the hollow hills somewhere. And, and so it's both. They get both of it. In the same way that Americans um, can both be cowboys and Indians, that we can have in America, in Chicago, we have giant statues of a of the bowman and the spearman on opposite sides of the entrance to Grant Park. The, the, the heroic scale statues of Indian warriors. There are not a lot of other heroic statues erected by the culture that exterminated its foe. And so Americans have that sense. Like uh, James Fenimore Cooper's Hawkeye, he's white, but he's also Indian. And so the British, I think, have that, we're Roman, but we're also Pictish, or Celtic, or, or whatever we are this day. It's almost as if they're comfortable with the idea of one culture made up of competing elements. It's almost as if. So the, uh, so, so the Ninth Legion gets uh, uh, sort of brought up in all kinds of exciting uh, contexts. The, um, there was a, a movie called uh, the, the Last Legion, um, which uh, starred Ashwarya Rai and has almost nothing else to recommend it, but it uh, has that the Last Legion becomes sort of the the kernel of the Arthurian um, uh, mythos. The Carl Edward Wagner, conversely, had the Last, last Legion uh, intermarry with uh, serpent people and become the worms of the earth. So you can sort of go any kind of direction you want to with it. So uh, what are the sort of prime ways to mine that for a role-playing narrative? I, I think I think you you can begin. In much the same way that the, that the British have, you, you uh, present it as a historical mystery to be salivated over, so you can send time travelers back for it. You can find uh, the lost remnants of the Lost Legion, um, you know, in uh, the desert of Araby or 
the, the jungles of Africa or some other nonsensical place and have a final Tarzan-style Lost World romance adventure. You can have the Lost Legion march into a temporal gateway and wind up in a parallel universe in much the same fashion that Harry Turtledove does with the Videssos cycle, in which a bunch of Roman legionaries show up and fix fantasy Byzantium and everything that was wrong with it. Uh, so you, you've got a lot of, I think, different possibilities. Anytime that you have, you know, between five and 6,000 superbly well-disciplined soldiers, there is a certain subset of gamers that wants to take it and conquer something with it, be that Mars or um, uh, the future America when there is nothing around but uh, war and Hello Kitty. Right, so that inspires us to think of different sort of scenarios in which you play the members of the Legion or a cognate thereof in your fantasy universe or science fiction universe or, or whatever it is, where you are the uh, key commanders of a force where you know, everybody knows going in, that they are going to go down, that this is going to be their last stand, and that the uh, stakes are whether you arrange for a compelling Pyrrhic victory, uh, which of course you would have to invent if you're actually doing the, uh, the Ninth Legion, some sort of thing that they could succeed at even though they're uh, destroyed. And then also that could give you the Call of Cthulhu style, you know, trying to militate for the most epic and amazing uh, death that realizes uh, whatever key seeds you have around your character. And so you might sort of have a series of heroic deaths in mind, and your goal then would be to achieve those in the, in the course of a narrative. And you could even create a, a board game experience or an app in which your uh, goal is, you know, you know you're going to lose, uh, but the question is how well you lose in some sort of a cooperative game format. Yeah, the, although admittedly most survival horror games already kind of have that anyway, because you're going to be overwhelmed by zombies or Picts or Pictish zombies, and the question is just how many of them are you going to take with you? I think that the notion of using it as, as the spine of a Call of Cthulhu adventure, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, is what intrigues me, because you could either play it with the Roma Invictus, um, Cthulhu Invictus rather, uh, setting that they have, the Roman Cthulhu setting, or you could set it in Ramsey Campbell country, the Severn Valley, or you could use Scotland, which is one of the places that uh, the Scots like to say the Lost Legion was lost, with the Shadows of Scotland uh, book from uh, Cubicle 7. And and so you have a lot of, I think, real possibilities that, you know, maybe Shubnigarath can be stopped by 6,000 incredibly gifted soldiers. And that's what it took to sort of bulk her for, you know, um, two millennia, and now you've got eight guys and you don't have 6,000 soldiers, you're not likely to get 6,000 soldiers, so what now? And so the, the, the legion being destroyed to, to, uh, to uh, put off the, the doom gives you a scale. It's, it's sort of the inverse of the Worf factor, where the alien beats up Worf to, to show you what a tough alien he is, except that since every alien beats up Worf, all you wind up thinking is that Worf is actually a fairly wimpy Klingon. Uh, you could also use it for the trigger of a sort of a Ulysses-style getting-home scenario where you are the, the last survivors and you're caught behind enemy lines and uh, you have to wend your way across uh, a hostile planet or continent or uh, whatever it is, depending on what imagery you want to draw on, on, on that genre. Or um, you could take a note actually from uh, Joseph Conrad in Heart of Darkness and do an Apocalypse Now story 
Uh, Conrad mentions that a, a Roman centurion sailing up the Thames must have felt the way that he did sailing up the Congo. You do that. You've got a centurion who's been sent to find the Lost Legion because there's been rumors that they're up to something unsavory out in the wildies of, of Britain, and you've got to go and kill um, uh, the, the, the Lost Legion's uh, commander because he is perverting the honor of Rome. He's, he's painting the eagles with his uh, filthy worship of the Magna Mater or Shubnigarath or Krom Kruak or whoever it is your uh, big bad is. You could also go for the dances with the wolves in a Roman helmet thing where the uh, last few survivors are in fact spared and you have a series of, uh, it could be a drama system thing where because it's more of a social situation where you've got a few survivors who've been assimilated for whatever reason into the uh, Pictish tribe and it's all about uh, rising up from lowly captive to trying to regain some sense of uh, power among the, the Picts and that could lead to a uh, you know, big epic battle between your sympathetic Pictish tribe, now led by the uh, guy with the Roman know-how against the uh, less sympathetic uh, neighboring tribe. Yeah, and uh, on that same note, you can have the sort of David Drake uh, ranks of bronze uh, twist where aliens abducted the Legion uh, as it was being surrounded by whoever it was that was surrounding them and carried them off to be warriors in the stars and either play the, uh, uh, I think Janissaries was the name of Cornell's novel, where it's uh, a planet that's been full of mercenaries from all time that uh, keep being dropped off by aliens and, and keep having to fight a bunch of barbarians. Or you do a, 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 a real uh, David Drake uh, uh, High Crusade type thing where Romans are just as good as any other Earthman faced with a bunch of green-blooded aliens and start conquering enemy planets with nothing but gladii and maybe a couple of uh, atomic bombs. It could be an interesting exercise to censor. This is one of those ideas where there are so many possible threads in so many directions. If you're sort of uh, have been running a very GM-directed game and are kind of out of inspiration and want your players to take the lead, is just give them an image like the Lost Legion and say, how would you, what sort of game would you like to run that runs on this imagery and see what they come up with, whether it's the survival horror or the transplanted to another planet or the long road home and uh, that could be a, because we're used to character sheets sort of being an order paper from players as to what it is that they want to do but you could get everybody together and uh, around this central image which gets away from the I don't know what do you want to do and sort of test your players as to uh, see what it is that they want to do with uh, this mythic image or any other mythic image of your choice. You, you could um, sort of even do it as a uh, Armitage Files type, type thing where you've got your, your characters and they've been rolled up to be omnicompetent adventurers of the sort that you, you have in a, in a properly high-powered GURPS game or uh, Dark Champions or a Knights Black Agents, and you start planting clues to the Lost Legion being very important, but no one's really sure what happened to them, but it's very important that they find, you know, their, their eyewitnesses are being killed and archaeologists are being kidnapped and whatever's going on. And then let your players decide based on what they think is happening how you turn that game. Maybe they go find an alien uh, UFO that's abducting people. Maybe they find an intertemporal gate. Maybe they find the body of Shubnigarath's first incarnation. Whatever it is that they find because they're looking for it is the thing that you are, you know, that, that always was going on with the Lost Legion. And you, you use that, uh, the, the incredible historical richness of, of something like that with, you know, uh, at least two different places to, to plant exciting clues and have uh, sword fights or gunfights 
as as the way to uh, let your players lay out the breadcrumbs in front of themselves. Well, uh, having laid out uh, more possibilities to play with the Lost Legion than anybody could possibly use in a lifetime of gaming, I think our work in this segment is done. of the Orthicon tube and the blue glow from the front room tell us we have entered the television hut, a strange and unusual hut filled with uh, strange and unusual people, many of whom seem to behave just like soap opera characters, which is my beef with them. Uh, Robin, do you want to start off by uh, tempting me into an epic rant, or how do you want to run this? So the inspiration for this segment is just to look at the different structures that television series have had over time, because we talk a lot about uh, movies in terms of finding inspiration for scenes and imagery, but that the uh, somewhat lower-budgeted world of television really tends to give us more of the structure that you see in an ongoing role-playing game campaign. And certainly now that I've been working on Drama System for a while, I've learned to look at different television series in terms of the extent to which they present a structure that is like the structure that evolves in a drama system series, and the differences even within that, where there are different shows that could easily be drama system shows, but nonetheless present us with different structures. But before we get to that, I thought we should kind of go back uh, into history and look at how structure of television series has evolved. So the first classic model for uh, TV series, which lasts us uh, up until about the 80s, is the episodic structure, where each episode stands alone, and the characters do not evolve that much over time, and there is uh, there may be slight references back to previous episodes. For example, if a new character enters the series midway through, obviously there will be a an arc where that character is introduced and then they become part of the normal world of the show and there might be the occasional reference back to the backstory. But really each episode is designed to stand completely on its own, which was an assumption about the attention spans of viewers and their uh, the ability to get viewers to jump on midway through. And so that's your your classic basic structure. And that could easily conform to a game in which you play a series of adventures or modules, and what happens in each adventure or, or module does not much impact what goes on after that. And the, you will also recognize this as the format of the much-discussed iconic hero that I often talk about, where uh, at least in an adventure situation that you have a character who encounters a problem at the beginning of the episode. That problem is some sort of disorder. By remaining true to their essential selves, they resolve that disorder, they solve the mystery, they confront the bad guys, whatever it is, depending on the genre of the adventure show. And then at the end of the episode, that wraps up. And uh, 
you have to go a long way into television history before that starts to break down uh, with the thing that inspires Ken to refer to it as the dread botchkoization. So the dire wanna, botchkoization. The, oh, sorry, the dire botchkoization. Uh, so perhaps you could uh, talk a bit about uh, that development and uh, perhaps why it irks your ire membranes. The dire botchkoization is, and what Robin was saying about the structure of television is true for primetime television, but of course it is not true for daytime television. The soap opera in television has gone through a series in which every episode refers back to former episodes, Online, uh, ongoing storylines are brought up and dropped, characters uh, have emotional growth or at least emotional whipsawings back and forth, some central characters seem to be immune to the narrative forces around them, but virtually every secondary character can be dead or married or get a twin or turn out to be a twin or turn out to be a dead married twin or any number of magical things can happen to them and the story continues and develops a momentum of its own and becomes its own narrative and the reason you tune into the soap opera or as uh, ladies of a certain generation say it, to my stories is literally to find out what happens next it is not to enjoy another adventure of Doctor Who or Captain Kirk it is to find out what happens next to see how the 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 the, the the the, hosp the general hospital deals with the next batch of crises and, and evil twins to find out you know what happens in you know the town of guiding light or wherever right and and the trick of that writing is often in its classic form to draw out those narrative developments as long as you possibly can with the little micro developments in each scene before you have to really change anything and the dire botchkoization is simply the taking of this soap operatic style and applying it to primetime serial television, beginning with Hill Street Blues, in which instead of a single character or perhaps a dyad of characters about whom the drama always revolves, such that Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock are always the guys who beam down and fix things, uh, with one or two individual character exceptions throughout the series, you have a vast cast of characters. You, and so you might follow... There, there are still actors who are better paid and so are going to be in more episodes or more scenes in an individual episode. But you follow a... An ensemble. An ensemble, thank you. Uh, an ensemble of characters across a number of storylines, any of which might advance by as much as, oh, a quarter turn during the course of a given episode. And the problem with the dire botchkoization is that unless you are a showrunner on the level of David Simon, what you get is slack storytelling, because instead of moving things ahead in much the same way that the guiding light does not actually settle the, the matter of the evil twin this week, you can move the story ahead just a little bit and you've sort of fed that uh, pellet of, of story creation and you can move on to another pellet of story creation on the next story arc. And because you have by now eight or nine or ten characters, each of them with at least one story arc or sometimes two or three if they're better paid actors, the result is sort of um, the uh, wheel of time effect in which nothing ever happens over the course of huge swaths of narrative experience television. And Bochco sometimes was able to dodge that. On um, L.A. Law, you at least would have a given case that would have to resolve. On Hill Street Blues, usually you'd have a homicide that would have to resolve. But in terms of the, uh, of the story elements of what's going on, it became looser and looser and slacker and slacker. And, of course, the ultimate ex expression of this uh, comes about in the HBO shows where they can assume that you're going to be watching 25 hours of television in a row and never have to actually uh, engage in the discipline of telling a single story in the case of Deadwood ever. And so to move back a bit into or, or to go to the next step in the evolution of structure, another very influential show is The X-Files, which 
introduces an episodic structure and then a mythology where during sweeps, often conveniently enough, uh, a broader narrative is developed. And then in between that, you have a series of sort of challenge of the week episodes that are self-contained, and then periodically you have an advancement, and unfortunately in the case of that show, a sort of jagged advancement that, like uh, Twin Peaks, uh, didn't uh, have an answer to the question that was nearly as interesting as the question, but nonetheless that was an extremely influential pattern of uh, television structure that you see uh, again and again, and you continue to see it uh, to various degrees, uh, particularly in other genre-oriented shows. And I would point to uh, Alias as another innovative show in that they took the case of the week structure and bumped that down into B story status, so that the A story was always the emotional or soap opera or uh, direly botchgoized uh, <laughs> emotional uh, connections between the characters on that show, particularly between uh, Sydney Bristow and her uh, real father and her uh, evil surrogate father, and you couldn't tell which was which and so forth, and the family dynamic there. But then periodically, these people who are having this soap opera would have a mission to go on, but sometimes the mission would wrap up in uh, a uh, you know, two-thirds of the way through the episode. And what was really important was the emotional fallout effect of the mission. And so that gives you that something that's much uh, closer to a, a drama system game where you can engage in procedural, uh, practical, overcoming of obstacles storytelling, but the bulk of it is then uh, an emotional uh, narrative. And you see that done to better effect in Fringe, where uh, there was, first of all, a, a more of a sense of a particular arc being resolved each season, uh, and also the uh, they made sure that uh, the results of the, the different revelations of the mysteries uh, continued to build, and I think it did a more successful job of it than X-Files. Hannibal is another uh, show, uh, and if you haven't been watching Hannibal, I'd recommend checking it out on DVD because it's a really surprisingly hard horror a crime show for a network television show, but it also very much uses that alias structure where the uh, case of the week is uh, a B story or sometimes even a C story where it's resolved uh, with crazy ease because the really important thing is the relationship between Hannibal Lecter and, and Will Graham and the events that happen as he investigates uh, cases of the week. Sometimes there isn't even a case of the week, but more repercussions from previous cases uh, come into play. And again, it is all about a continuing emotional dynamic. You can see in the first season that they are very much laying out the building blocks of the backstory that they're presenting from the other Hannibal Lecter novels. Uh, but uh, within that uh, setup, they're doing something that is uh, still pretty unusual for network TV structure-wise. Yeah, my uh, example of the post-botchkoization done right is Veronica Mars, where you always had, I think in every episode, you had an A and a B and a C story, and it would vary as to which one of the stories uh, was the A, the B, or the C. They would, they, there was usually a story in which Veronica had to solve some problem for one of her contemporaries. Her father had some sort of private detective case that may or may not have developed uh, 
thorns, and there was the ongoing sort of mystery of the season, the season-long arc, who killed Billy Kane in the first series, who bombed the bus in the second, and, and so forth. And the genius of Veronica Mars was it was not always going to be the sort of the mythology arc or the series arc that was the, the C story or even the B story. Sometimes it would be the A story. Sometimes Veronica would resolve a, uh, you know, her case relatively rapidly and then have an emotional fallout from her father. And by playing on all three of those levels, there is always at least one story being told in every episode, usually two, as well as satisfying emotional moments, as well as plot movement along the narrative arc. And because uh, Rob Thomas sort of, I mean, he sort of was just good at it. It's much like David, you know, David Simon with uh, Homicide and with uh, Wire. You know, don't try this at home. You must be this talented to use this structure. But he manages to play all three levels off of each other such that every episode is as emotionally tight as an episode of Seinfeld is narratively tight. And then you would be able to have the experience of having watched an episode of doing what television does uh, in that format while also serving the longer form story arc so that it's just as satisfying to watch an individual episode or, you know, glut yourself on 13 episodes in a row. Right. And if you look at David Simon's latest series, Treme, he has very deliberately chosen to have a looser narrative structure where he's stepping back from the novelistic construction of The Wire to something that is much more loosey-goosey. And I think that is deliberately part of his strategy of trying to create something that is about the rhythms of everyday life in that specific city, that the idea of a tightly structured show and New Orleans in the wake of Katrina don't really go together. And so consequently, he's uh, purposely made the structure of that show looser, but of course has, as a re I think arguably as a result of that, and because it's not as much of a cop show uh, epic with a, a sort of a violent mystery behind it to the same degree is not as popular a show as as The Wire became over time. I, yeah, I think that, you know, certainly when you have done The Wire, you are entitled to do Treme. I think if Treme was someone's first outing, I would, I, I would uh, you know, bollocks it and, and call them a slacker the way that I do uh, Bochco or the way that I do uh, David Milch. But when you've done, you know, Homicide and you've done uh, The Wire... One can look with respect on it, but I think that the problem with the botchquization, the problem with this attempt to take a soap opera storytelling uh, uh, format and play it out without the emotional intensity of, of a soap opera uh, means that you, uh, you you do wind up with a looser with a looser feel, and I don't think it works for television. What you wind up making is a 22-hour-long movie, and if you immediately sort of clenched your toes up at the thought of sitting through a 22-hour-long movie, you'll sort of get where I'm coming at in terms of the fundamental problem with this sort of long-format storytelling. It's the same problem with The Wheel of Time, where something that could have been done with narrative economy in, in three volumes uh, is simply padded out because you've got a hundred viewpoint characters by the end of it, and every single one of them has to have a scene in which they tell each other what happened in the last volume. Um, I can hear the partisans of uh, Tom Fontana and Barry Levinson wanting to point out that uh, those were the uh, creators of Homicide and that David Simon uh, wrote the book on which it was based and came in in later seasons as, as a writer. Right, and Barry Levinson is also a really terrific uh, showrunner, and I should not uh, imply... Or, or and creator in general, he's he's a he's a great uh, movie writer as well. So I don't want to 
I want to diss him at all. Structure is, of course, a challenging thing to try to pull off in an improvised, real-time experience that is role-playing gaming. And so what seems like a flaw, if you want to look at things in terms of their structure, is in sometimes a thing that you can aspire to more as a model for what you're playing out in a game. So the sloppiest structured show on television today has got to be True Blood. Yeah. And um, and I would argue that that is, uh, to the extent that that is a fun show, that is almost sort of part of its charm, is that it really feels like a make em up as you go along. I mean, the, the whole point of True Blood after its first season, which was more a mystery procedural show with soap opera elements inspired by a series of books that use that structure, it is basically the show that is its own fan fiction. Yeah. True Blood is like watching someone's vampire campaign in all the good and all the bad that that is. Whereas Supernatural is like watching a much tighter GM's uh, vampire killing campaign, their, their, their uh, Buffy campaign or Knights Black Agents campaign, in which all of the same sort of game equality, the sort of anything goes mentality is there, the sort of, yeah, why not, when it goes, whatever, um, is there, but the GM has obviously thought about what it's going to do in his story, whereas in True Blood, it's literally like the guy watched that episode of Supernatural and said, oh, we should put Wendigos in my story, that'd be awesome, Wendigos could fight vampires, and then has no idea what to do with it, and the Wendigo just sort of stands around and, you know, shows up and or doesn't show up ever again. Yes, it's, the GM has been backed into a corner or its drama <laughs> system, and somebody's called a scene with a Wendigo, and nobody's uh-huh. really picked up that thread again. Uh, an example of a show which on one level is similarly pulpy in tone, but is... Uh, very, very tightly constructed as Sons of Anarchy, where if you look over the course of a season, in the early episodes, you will see scenes where it's like, oh, well, that was clearly some uh, botchkoization where they just threw in something, and then, oh, no, wait, that's going to pay off in episode 11. And that, it, and when you go back and look at it all, that something that is apparently loosey-goosey is all setting you up for uh, something that is written with that sense of novelistic forethought. But again, that's much more difficult to aspire to in role-playing. Sometimes you have to forgive yourself an occasional uh, underused Wendigo. Yeah, and, and, and in, it's also difficult television, in fairness. I mean, people, uh, you know, they, they, they believe that there's some room in which, you know, Damon Lindelof sits down and he writes out six seasons of Lost. And David, Damon Lindelof may believe that, but it just isn't the way that television functions in America. In, in Great Britain, you can, you can pull that kind of thing off because you know that you're only going to have 13 episodes and you need to tell a full story in that period. And, and so there are different sort of commercial constraints going on. But in America, you, you literally have no idea if you're writing for one episode or 101 episodes. And there's almost no way to do that unless you are just preternaturally careful to always weave your threads back in and invest them with retroactive meaning. And again, someone like Rob Thomas could do that. And many other showrunners and many other creators of shows, you know, Damon Lindelof among them, can't. Right, and, and if you've ever read about the experience of being a writer on a television show, that you are in the weeds, and you know if uh, the AV Club has a relatively new feature where they will go back through a season of television with the showrunner, and you uh, get the behind the scenes on you know why did this episode seem compromised or why did this seem like there were these elements that weren't coming together. Well, it's because like a GM, except with uh, millions of dollars on the line and people <laughs> coming in and giving you notes all the time, they are. 
uh, having to make it up as they uh, go along and people who have the, the luxury to sit down and basically really flesh out a tightly structured season are uh, the exceptions because that's not the way the industry works. Yeah, and, and you get um, uh, just crazy events like Gillian Anderson getting pregnant in the middle of the X-Files and so a lot of the sort of narrative problems with the X-Files are caused because Chris Carter really did not want to work an alien baby episode in, but he didn't have a choice because that happened. Now, it's all it's all on him that he introduced a completely unnecessary alien baby four seasons later, but you are thrown by a loop with production details. Actors leave, actors get pregnant, actors get they get super popular and blow up on the internet, and you sort of have to put them in because your fan base likes them. You have a, a story in the headlines you want to comment on. You fire a guy and bring a new guy on. There are a lot of changes in the background. In role-playing, it's the same thing like when the guy who's playing the... Um, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the wizard, you know, can't make it to game two days in a row or two sessions in a row. And suddenly your party is horribly underpowered or you can't leave all those uh, foreshadowing notes that you'd written to yourself because you're a, a careful uh, David Simon, uh, Rob Thomas type GM. But you can't foreshadow because the character who gets the foreshadowing isn't there. So you foreshadow it to the bard and it feels forced and unnatural and everyone knows it. But they also know they've got to get the clue if the game's going to go on. I think it, it, television in that respect is very similar to role playing in terms of being an ad hoc improv sort of thing, but as you point out, just over a much longer period of time and costing millions of dollars. Right. And so that's why, you know, in a realistic sense, the crazy loopy never drop a plot thread, have all the characters ship with each other structure of true blood is something that's a lot easier to aspire to than the tightness of Sons of Anarchy or The Wire. And again, also comes out of the soap operas because they had to do something with those characters and having them hook up is the obvious thing. Uh, every, everything that people uh, want to give you know, HBO shows credit for was all pioneered uh, by a lovely young lady in Chicago for the radio in the 1930s and then put on television starting in 1946. So thanks, Cutting Edge. Right. So uh, the next time you, uh, someone complains that your campaign is uh, just a soap opera with fights, uh, you can say, that's the template, baby. That's how it's done. Now we once again enter the shadowy precincts in which haunts the consulting occultists for part five of our ongoing series on the Nazi occult. Much like invading Russia, perhaps it seemed like a better idea at the beginning than it does now. I, I think that I think people are digging this. Ken, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> That's uh, right. We're, we're a little punchy because we're recording two episodes back to back, so I, I don't think that uh, our audience shares our weariness, but uh, <laughs> in case they... Uh, they do. Well, you can just turn off the podcast now. But for those of us who want to stick around, um, this is drawn from Ken's book, The Nazi Occult, uh, his new book of imaginative uh, nonfiction or fictional reality for the Osprey Adventures line. It's part of the uh, Osprey Dark subset of Osprey Adventures. And uh, this time we're going to look at the Thule Gesellschaft. And uh, those of us who've been trained by uh, generations of post World War II pop culture have been trained to look at almost any German word as seeming uh, sinister and uh, fraught with Teutonic power. Uh, Gesellschaft uh, certainly rings with that sort of sense until you realize it's, it's just the word for society. So uh, we have the Thule Society uh, to deal with this weekend. So in the uh, reality of history, what was the Thule Gesellschaft? Okay, the Thule Gesellschaft began as 
a way for um, the Munich branch of the Germanen Orden, which was a secret society of rich jerks, uh, which predated World War I, to meet in, uh, without drawing the attention of the civic authorities, who were at that point primarily socialists and suspicious of rich jerks. And so they had what they called a German study group uh, for you know, the study of German history and German mythology. What could possibly go wrong? What could go wrong? Germans studying together. That's never caused a bad effect yet. Anyway, the, uh, the, specifically, uh, the specific topic of this study group is Thule, which is the sort of um, mystical northern land uh, mentioned by the navigator Pythias of Massilia in the 3rd century BC or thereabouts. And the uh, Thule became a sort of sole symbol for the Germans because, by gosh, it's a lost continent that's up in the Nordic north, not the filthy uh, Latinate south. And so, therefore, it's our lost continent, and we like it best. And so the Thule Society was the society for studying the magical and spiritual component of Germany's glorious ancestry, which was never more relevant than while everyone was starving to death and freezing to death after World War I. And they got together in the Four Seasons, which was the best hotel in Munich, and had talks about uh, runes and swastikas and swastika runes, and why was it that all those socialists were, you know, that kind of people? And uh, one thing led to another, and the head of the Thule Society, a guy named Rudolf von Sibottendorf, whose name was actually Adam Glauer, but that should not detain us uh, too long, um, he was adopted by a guy named von Sibottendorf, so that's close enough. Uh, he uh, sort of got his group of uh, rich jerks involved in right-wing politics in Munich. Uh, there was a, a sort of a shambolic anarchist coup uh, attempt in Munich that was followed up by a very serious communist coup d'etat that succeeded, and suddenly Bavaria was a red republic. Uh, von Sebattendorf put the Thule sort of in the forefront of the resistance to the red republic, uh, and made enough noise and was uh, bad enough at being a conspirator that the Reds dragged uh, seven members of the Thule Society out and shot them in the street on uh, Valpurgisnacht uh, 1919. And as a result of that action... The Thule's newspaper, which was the Münchner Beobachter, the Munich Observer, um, sort of blew that up as a big outrage. You know, r people of Munich rise up against this tyranny, and by the coincidental appearance of a very large uh, unit of Freikorps, which were the demobilized World War I veterans who didn't like communism any better than anybody else. Other than communists. Other than communists, obviously. Um, marched in and put the Reds down, and in the tumult, uh, the Thule sort of had a brief uh, uh, Indian summer as being heroes of the successful anti-communist uh, revolution in 1919. And it was during that time that, uh, looking around for new um, uh, worlds to conquer, they thought, what we really need is a worker's auxiliary, because just being rich jerks who talk about magical Thule is somehow not really that appealing to the people of Munich. So we'll send our uh, our, our uh, buddies out to found a workers' auxiliary and talk about um, the sort of general uh, things workers like, but we're going to use them to get ourselves into power. And this uh, workers' auxiliary was called the German Workers' Party, or Deutsche Arbeiter Partei, which renamed itself the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Uh, and you can sort of see where this is going. A uh, army informer named Adolf Hitler is sent to keep an eye on this new political group when it has about 50 members. He shows up, 
and he hears a couple of speeches, and he says to himself, Self, I could do better than that guy at running a worker's auxiliary, and indeed he did. And so the Thule Society basically founded the Nazi party, is, is what happened in sober, actual, honest historical fact, although it was almost immediately taken away from them by uh, army informer and uh, general rabble-rouser Adolf Hitler. So in its original incarnation, uh, you've got a combination of uh, mystic inquiry and right-wing politics. And what sort of, and obviously as it becomes the Nazi party and is taken away from them uh, almost immediately by Hitler, it uh, winds up being a political organization. Uh, and what sort of breakdown uh, in its early days, did it start out as more of an occult society and grow more into politics? Or was the occultism always intended to be sort of a forward edge of its politics? Well, the the Germanen Orden was founded as a, a Volkish society, uh, a mystical Volkish society, sort of on the magical end. Uh, the guy who founded it uh, thought he was a Templar, and he had the, Bavari the Bavarian Order of the Thule was a cover for, was called the Germanen Orden Volvater of the Holy Grail. So it was a pagan grail knightly Templar movement uh, of, uh, of Ariosophist uh, Volkish mystery. So it began very much as a magical cover for a more magical group. But all of the members of that magical group were rich jerks and had sort of rich jerk politics, which in the Germany of World War I were fairly right-wing. And certainly after the uh, loss of World War I became very right-wing because the uh, socialists and communists were putting rich jerks up against the wall and shooting them, so you can hardly blame them. So how overtly mystical an organization was it at the time that it became the Nazi party and was taken over by Hitler? Well, the, the Thule was very mystical. It was always meant to be a group for studying these sorts of topics. It was like, you know, having a club that gathers to talk about UFO sightings or something, but instead they're talking about Germany's magical, mystical past. Um, and the degree to which you bring belief in rune magic to it is a matter of the individual person. Just like Masonic orders, you know, in the 17th or 18th century, there were people who believed that there was a, ma a magical chain going all the way back to, you know, the builders of Solomon's Temple, and there were people who just showed up because they wanted to uh, meet people and network and get ahead in business. And I'm sure that the Thule had that same uh, duality going on, but its official purpose was, uh, you know, um, anthropological study or mystical study or German heritage study of the sort that everyone understood was a occultic type of, of study group. Now, the, the workers' party that became the Nazis was not about that. That was just about letting these rich jerks have their own street fighters so that they wouldn't be caught out by the next time the communists tried anything. So uh, does the Thule Society continue on after their... Uh workers' goon party is taken over by Hitler? Uh, no, it does not. Uh, first of all, uh, the Thule Society believes that Rudolf uh, von Sebattendorf was very conveniently absent when people were being strung up against a wall and shot, and so they sort of throw him out, and that starts a schism, which is always bad for an occult society. Um, and then they are, you know, in some senses uh, slowly, and in other senses very rapidly, being shoved aside by the Nazi party, which has obviously got much more that it can say to the average German than the Thule Society. And again, this is the, the sort of the, the paradox of the Nazi occult, that all of the success the Nazis had, 
came maybe from the propaganda, maybe from the ceremony, maybe from the symbolism, but most of it came from being a populist political party in a country that basically had seen itself destroyed by its aristocracy and its financial sector. And it looked at that and said, well, that's terrible. We'd like to have other people run Germany now. And so those uh, people pretty much split down the middle. Some of them became socialists and the others became fascists. And the Nazis were just the fascist party that, that, that won the big fight. So in actual history, uh, both sides of the equation uh, vanish into obscurity. Yeah, the, the Nazis banned the Thule uh, Gesellschaft in 1933 when they come to power, along with most of the other mystical organizations and secret societies, because uh, Himmler has a great fear of Masons, and anything that looks like Freemasonry is probably a glove on the hand of the British crown, and he wants it out of Germany. Right, and uh, he himself is an occultist and presumably wants no occultism that he is not in charge of. Right, and again, this is the time when Villagut is you know, picking and choosing who gets to be a real rune magician, and I suspect the Thule guys uh, would look at Villagut and say, you're crazy, you're bald, you drool on yourself, and you're middle class, four strikes, no thanks. And I suspect he was getting some of his own back there. So in the actual history of the, the Nazi occult, they're sort of a, a formative force that is uh, very important but is quickly eclipsed. Yeah, it, it, it's, like a, it's like a sort of a, a, a wacky thing they used to do in the past, like when you learned that you know, David Niven was a commando. It's not really relevant to his acting, except, hey, David Niven could kill a guy. That's cool. Right. Somewhat less wacky, actually. Uh, yeah. um, and so uh, in the mythology of the, Nat the Nazi occult, uh, are they also... Uh, consigned to a formative influence, or are there interesting uh, conspiracies and wackadoodle storylines that have sprung up around them? Oh, no. The, 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 the wackadoodle conspiracy is that this, the Thule Society is, and if you are going to believe that the Nazis are a magical occult uh, force, the Thule Society is pretty ideally placed to be your guys. So I think from the very beginning of the Nazi conspiracy meme, it is the Thulists and the Thule and figures who are associated with Thule, like the mystical poet and playwright uh, Dietrich Eckhart. Um, Rudolf Hess was actually a member of Thule and was actually an occultist, as we've talked about earlier. Alfred Rosenberg at least came to meetings, may or may not have been a Thuleist. Uh, Nicholas Goodrich Clark says he wasn't, but other biographers uh, say he was. Maybe the diaries will reveal a little more about that. Um, so when you've got a group of wannabe magicians right there founding the Nazi party, it does not take... Even a conspiracy theorist can draw that line. And so they have been part and parcel of the magical Nazi meme all the way back to 1933. And certainly with um, uh, the publication of The Morning of the Magicians in 1960, which was sort of the, the, the ground zero detonation of the modern occult Nazi meme, uh, the Thule... And, and who's the author of that? In the, it's a pair of Frenchmen named uh, Jacques uh, Bergier and um, Louis Powells, I believe. Uh, Powell's maybe a Belgian, but they're, um, but, but, but they were French authors and they published this in 1960, sort of right at the dawn of the counterculture. And it became a huge bestseller in America. And it, it, my copy is covered with hippie, uh, you know, flowers and, and all kinds of nonsense. And it's sort of, you know, the, the birth of the new age, uh, was like all births, you know, bloody and loud. And in this particular case, the morning of the magicians is the morning of the Nazi party for Powell's and Bergier. So how do you uh, get from uh, the uh, hippy-dippy ethos of the dawn of the New Age to f uh, finding the uh, messings about of uh, proto-Nazis uh, part of your agenda? Well, I, th I think that if you are going to... S I mean, and Powell's and Bergier are French, so they're not quite the same thing, and they're a generation... They're, they're the greatest generation. They were World War II 
Right, but but this was taken victims. up by the hippie movement. What interest did they have in it? And it was taken up by, by that, or, or certainly sold to them, because the hippie movement again. It's like the old Chesterton, you know, comment. Um, you know, uh, the, once you've opened your mind, you'll let anything into it. Uh, the uh, the so hippies, the interest is basically, oh wow, look at my hand. Yeah, exactly. It's we know that square reality is wrong because it says we're dirty people who can't get a job. So we have to believe everything square reality doesn't believe. And again, if you're looking for something square reality doesn't believe, the Nazis were right is right up there. And so Powell's and Bergier's great gift is to separate, in at least cosmetic fashion, the part of the Nazism that even the hippies don't go with, you know, the mass murdering and such and starting wars, from the part where you, you know, make fuel out of nutmeg and you build flying saucers and go to Antarctica and you have magical channeling and you can uh, be turned into a great orator by a, by a, by a crazy heroin addict poet. And all of these things that are part of the, the sort of the glam Nazis, as China Mievel refers to them in Kraken, uh, get to be brought into your general New Age movement, ideally by separating them from the actual thing that drives all this glam Nazism, which is, of course, you know, just monomaniacal anti-Semitism and a lust for power that would make Nietzsche quail. So what are your, uh, given this sort of a, a dodgy provenance of uh, wanting this to be true, uh, what are your uh, favorite wackadoodle uh, narratives surrounding the Fool Society? Well, I, I, I like all of them. I mean, I, I think that the Fool Society is one of those universal joints of conspiracy theory. They're like the Templars. They're like the Cthulhu mythos. They're everywhere you want to be. And so for me... The thing that's fun about the Fool Society is, ironically, the like hard, painstaking research that people like Nicholas Goodrick Clark did, that Jocelyn Godwin do, does, uh, even that Peter Lavenda does, God bless him, um, to try and figure out exactly where the lines are and to find all the sort of secondary and minor figures that we don't know about. The guys who are writing the pamphlets that uh, the Fool Society is also reading, the, 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 the publisher of Ostara in Vienna, and find out what he's up to during that, that period of time. Uh, and, and so it, it's less, you know, Fool Society is the magical force behind uh, the Nazis. It becomes the on and air, but it goes around and, you know, hunts the Holy Grail. That's fine. That's great. That's, that's sort of the 101 level. I like the part where you dig around and you find just insane uh, rune magicians uh, like Tarnhari, who uh, was a devotee of Guido von Liszt, but was his own kind of rune magician and was sort of the, the, the guy that, uh, von, uh, that Willigut, uh, puts away, uh, really early. And so the question is, what's, what's going on there? Why is there some sort of monkey business with, um, uh, with, with, with Tarnhari? And why is Willigut so, you know, so interested in having this guy silenced? There's some sort of secret war between alphabets that is being, you know, played out with the swastikas going left hand or right hand. You, you, you can look at all that sort of buried, attention that is actually just because fringe people be fringe and um and and you can build all manner of things on it It, it's one of those things that's simultaneously well documented and completely obscure so there's lots and lots of loose ends to to drag stories down off of i'm very fond for example of the notion that carl haushofer who was the uh sort of a geopolitician and scholar uh who sort of um, established the concept of lebensraum in the german academic uh, reality he was also uh, an ambassador, a military attaché in Japan, and learned a bunch of uh, magical stuff from the Japanese, so they say, and talked to the man with green gloves in Tibet and brought that knowledge back to Rudolf Hess. And the Rudolf Hess and Karl Haushofer are there, you know, plotting 
the, the, the magical uh, uh, nexi of power that the Third Reich is going to have to conquer if it's going to dominate the world by uh, sorcerer's acupuncture or, or whatever. And, and so I, I like uh, sort of fringe figures like Haushofer, who, as far as anyone knows, had no connection whatsoever to uh, the Thule Society, but were buddies with uh, Rudolf Hess, who is, honest to God, a, a Thule Society member. So is it possible to create uh, sympathetic Thule Society characters, or are they all irredeemably uh, rich jerks whose only redeeming value is that they weren't quite as evil as the Nazis? I, I think you can... I mean, there's, there's people have managed to create sympathy for Rudolf Hess in various narratives, and, and certainly because we are on the other side of the war, he comes across as sort of a, a pathetic schmuck and not so much as a dangerous, uh, you know, secret policeman. But you can certainly have a guy who's caught up in the Thule Society, um, uh, you know, being being a, 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 a upper-class Bavarian is not necessarily an indictment, per se, and certainly you can see a guy who's like, well, I've got to use this magic to stop communism, and then slowly realizes that everything is going to hell around him you know, he was part of a, one of those great, you know, I was part of a big uh, ceremony at the beginning, and now I see what I summoned, and I've got to stop it. That's a, that's a trope in, in dark fantasy literature for a reason. You can certainly cast any number of, um, uh, of Thulists in that role uh, from, you know, uh, and, and uh, Goodrick Clark's book is full of, of proper names that cannot be researched for love or money in the modern era. Um, I think another uh, a fun thing is the notion that the Thule Society has got some sort of aristocratic connection to the Thurnan Taxis, the secret post office set up uh, in Pynchon's parody conspiracy novel, The Crying of Lot 49. And so uh, one of the Counts von Thurnan Taxis was the, one of the guys killed uh, by the communists on Walpurgisnacht. And so you've got, you know, another dueling conspiracy being dragged in there. And those guys... You know, they're sort of old-school aristocrats, and if steampunk has taught us anything, it's that we've forgiven the 19th century for being full of old-school aristocrats. So are there now uh, neo-Thulists, as there are uh, neo-Nazis? Yeah, there are, but I think most of them are also neo-Nazis. I think being a neo-Thulist, you know, saying Thule anything, because uh, much like having a toothbrush mustache or putting a swastika up, you have to, you know... You, you have to be a Tibetan Buddhist to get away with the swastika, and I think no one can carry off a t toothbrush mustache anymore. And I think similarly, if you say, no, we're a Thule study group, everyone knows what you are. It's just like if you're the guy walking around um, uh, Origins with a Rommel t-shirt, we know what you actually mean by that. Right. So it's uh, basically the, the copy book on that has been uh, blotted. and anyone... Fairly irretrievably right. blotted. Which is a shame, because Thule's a fun, you know, magic island, and you can play around with it, but... I think you're better off calling yourself a Brendan the Navigator research group and then just sneaking Thule in the back door than saying, I'm going to be the man who reclaims Thule for decent, forward-looking white men everywhere. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just it doesn't end well. Right. Uh, I, think, I think we saw that. And, but yeah, there certainly are neo-Thulists. Uh, again, uh, Goodrick Clark, who, who died tragically too early, had a terrific book called The Black Sun, which is a study of post-war Nazi occultism, which is if anything, even crazier than pre-war Nazi occultism, because you know how that story ends, and you're still a Nazi occultist. I mean, that's just nuts. Um, I suppose you could do a story where the uh, searchers for Thule find it, and to their dismay discover that it's occupied by a lost Ethiopian tribe. <laughs> yes, I think uh, lost Ethiopian tribes are certainly the, um, uh, the, 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 the big reveal at the heart of Thule, that um, uh, it's all... Uh, this, a, a Nation of Islam Thule Society crossover is exactly what we've all been waiting for, I think. 
Uh, well, on, on that note, now that we're uh, crossing our conspiracy streams, I think uh, our uh, latest installment in our shortly-to-be-concluded uh, series on the Nazi occult can now be put to rest. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Protect your battle standard at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>